Hey Icon, Josh here. So I am excited for us to get into our second week of our rest series. And so we're going we're gonna to jump into Exodus 34, but first I just want to pray and uh, we'll, get, we'll get into it. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it comes to us in such unexpected ways, God, that you, you reveal yourself in ways that totally go against how we would, if we were left to guess, we would not guess the way that you actually are. And so I thank you for that. I thank you that you are so unlike us, that you are so so often contrary to what we think and what we feel. And God, I pray that today as my friends hear this message from your word, that as I preach it, God, you would give us a deep sense of who you are in grace and in mercy and in love, and that it would ignite our heart in some fresh ways, God. And so, Father, I I thank you for your word. I thank you for your character. And I ask that it would be on display today and that we would worship you because of it, God. Would you unite your power with my weak words and cause devotion and worship in our hearts as a consequence, God. Father, we love you and we entrust this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So something to know about me is I am a big coffee guy. Uh, so for a long time, I thought it was uh, gross, you know, when, you, when you're 18 to 23 and you don't really need coffee, you never really see the benefit of it. But then when I, you know, kind of got into an adult job and I had to wake up early, I, I started to drink coffee and just give it a shot simply out of necessity. Um, and the more and more that I got into it, the more and more I fell in love with it. Um, I actually spent some time working at a really great coffee shop down in Dallas. Um, that all the more just kind of bolstered that love to where I got to see the creativity of coffee and what it is and what you can do with it, uh, the region that it comes from, the elevation. There's just there's so much complexity in making a good cup of coffee. But one of the things that so many people miss about making a good cup of coffee is neglecting to take care of their instruments, specifically the coffee pot. You see, whenever you're even just making drip coffee, even if it's a really, really good machine, you have to take care of it. And one of the best ways to take care of it that you have to do on a on a regular basis is you do what's called descaling the coffee pot. And so what that is, is basically you use different substances for it. I use this thing called CLR, which takes away the calcium, lime and rust out of the coffee pot. And what happens is as you are brewing your coffee over time, again and again and again, there begins to collect in there certain, uh, certain minerals and certain bacteria that will totally ruin the taste of your coffee. So you have, you have calcium that builds up in there. You can have a little bit of rust. You can have bacteria. And so when you don't clean your coffee pot, when you don't descale it, you begin to get this taste of coffee that is really sour or really harsh or sharp. And so just even disconnected from my sermon, I just want to tell you, clean your coffee pot, okay? Do Just get a little dollop of CLR, put it in there once every two months or so, and you should be good to go. But, but that idea of, of descaling, of, of taking away some of the things that ruin your experience with coffee, that's kind of like what we're hoping to do in this series. You see, over time, all of us in the Christian life, slowly, without us even noticing it sometime, begin to build up certain thoughts about God that are harsh, that create a a bitter experience of the Christian life. 
And what we're hoping to do in this series is that your heart would be, in a way, descaled of some of those things. The buildup from sin or from suffering or from just the general hardship in life, confusion in the Christian life, difficulty in relationships, all of these things add to certain thoughts and ideas that we have about God. They build up and they collect and we've got to do the work, the right thing to look at God's word, to see who he actually is and let the truth of who he is just give us rest, to take away some of those harmful, harsh thoughts about God that will ruin our experience of Christianity, that will, that will take us away from his presence, that will cause us to turn away do you, do you want to know why maybe you struggle in your prayer life? Do you want to know why it's maybe difficult for you to read your Bible on a, on a consistent basis? Why is it so hard to be in community and to confess and share and walk in the light with others? It's not just because you're lazy. It's because there's, there's things that you have, there's ideas that you have about God that are slowly, without even noticing you, just, just keeping you away from his presence, thinking that you can't come to him, thinking that you have to be afraid of him. And what we're hoping, again, in this series to do is that the Spirit of God would come to you, would show you all of who God is, and that that would take away those harsh thoughts. That, that would take away this, this fear that you can't come to him that you can't be honest with him, that you don't want to pray because you don't know who you're praying to, that you don't, want to, you, don't, you don't want to spend time with him because you're afraid of him deep down. He's just going to confront you. He's just there to judge you. He's just there to be harsh towards you. And today, as, as we get into Exodus 34, we are going to look at what I think is probably the most popular and the most widespread harsh thought about God. And that is that he is, at his core, judgmental, nitpicky, exacting and precise, waiting to burst out at you at any given infraction, that he himself is harsh. And we want to we look at Exodus 34 in order that that little piece of us that makes us feel afraid of God because we think that he's harsh, we think that we can't trust him, we want that to, to fall away. And so we're, we're looking at Exodus 34, 6 through 7. And it's important to say that at the outset that it is no exaggeration to say that the two verses we're going to look at today is the high point of Old Testament revelation. You see, the, the story of Exodus, as it's been building so far, some of you know it, that the people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt. God had finally had enough and was going to set them free. And so he goes through and does all of these wonderful miracles, all of these wonderful works in order to, in order to wrest the people of Israel out of the hand of the Pharaoh. And then when he finally does that, he actually parts an actual sea and then leads them out into, uh, on this journey towards what he's promised will be theirs. And he gives them bread and he gives them water. And he does, he does all of these things to show, him that, to show these people that he is committed to them. He is fully leaned into the relationship. He is fully committed and he will do all that it takes for them to have what they need, to have what they want, to see that he himself is good. But there's a moment in the story of Exodus 
where things take a turn. And it's actually right before our text today. You see, they, the, the people of Israel come to Mount Sinai and God says to Moses, the leader of the people, come up the mountain and I'm, I'm going to show you who I am and I'm going to show you, I'm, I'm going to give you the blueprint for what it looks like to live as the people of God. And that ends up taking a little while. And so the people who are down at the bottom of the mountain get a little worried. Moses, the, the person who's led us up this mountain, we haven't seen him for days, maybe even weeks. We don't know if he's dead. And so this is what we should do. We should take the gold, we should take all of the plunder that God gave us out of Egypt, throw it in the fire, and then construct for ourselves an idol that we can bow down to, an idol that we can see, that we know is there, and we will worship that. The people so quickly turn away from God, turn away from him, forgetting that this is the God who parted an actual Red Sea. A God who rained bread down from heaven when they were hungry. A God who gushes water out of a rock when they are thirsty. A God who sees and takes care of them, but they turn so quickly. And so God is, in uh, rightfully so, says, listen, the, the, these people are going to be stiff-necked this entire time. And so I'm going to give you an angel, and I'm going to let him lead you out into the promised land, but I, I'm not going with you. And Moses intercedes and says, no, like if, if you brought us out here and you don't go with us, all the other nations are going to mock us and mock you. So don't do that. And God, in his grace, relents and actually does go with the people. And so Moses, as he's about to go out with the people of Israel, he's asking God, OK, if we're going to go on this massive journey, I need to know who you are. I need to have a settled sense of who it is that has saved us. And who it is that is leading us. So he says above in Exodus 33, please show me your glory. And God says in response, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. So God agrees. He says, okay, you want to know who I am. You want to see my glory. What makes me tick? What makes me God? I'm going to show it to you. And it's these two verses of Exodus 34, verses 5 through 7, that God actually does that. God is revealing the center of who he is to Moses. The center of who he is. He's saying, yes, you want to know me? I'm going to show you. The, the Old Testament scholar, Walter Brueggemann, says this about this verse. It is an, ex an exceedingly important, stylized, quite self-conscious characterization of Yahweh. A formulation so studied by the Jews that it may be reckoned to be something of a classic normative statement to which Israel regularly returned, meriting the label credo. So these, these few verses are the creed of the people of Israel. For the rest of the story of the Bible... <laughs> They get a picture of who God is. And friends, what does he say? What does God show himself as? How does he reveal himself? Look at Exodus 34, verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, 
a God merciful and gracious. The very first word that God gives about himself, the, the words that he not just says, but proclaims, God is preaching here. It doesn't just say that God lets Moses know. He says that he proclaims. And what does he say? The Lord, the Lord, a God exacting and precise? No. The Lord, the Lord, a God tolerant and overlooking? No. The Lord, the Lord, a God disappointed and frustrated? No. It says that he is gracious and merciful. The self-identification that God gives most priority to. The first thing that God wants you to know about himself as God is revealing the very center of who he is in the beauty of his glory, he says, gracious. This is who I am. I'm, I'm gracious, meaning ready to give you what you don't deserve. Ready to give you what you don't deserve. Ready to still be toward you the God of favor and of love and of life that you have, in reality, disqualified yourself from. You see, God's grace is not just Him giving us what we don't deserve. That it's some sort of transaction of, yes, you don't deserve it, but I'm going to give it anyways. It's not just a thing, it's Himself. God being gracious is Him being for us what we chose to give up on in our sin. In our sin, we exchanged the glory of God for a lie. Romans 1. But God, in His grace, comes to that moment and says, I'm still going to give you myself. I'm still going to give you who I am. He still chooses to be toward us what we would have had, what He would have been toward us if we, if we had never sinned. God is gracious. He still offers all of the love and life and flourishing and fulfillment that we would have had if we had never turned from him. God's grace means that he never turns from us even when we do. He never turns from us even with the litany of examples for when we do. God is gracious. God remains committed to be towards you the God that you need. The God that you long for. God is gracious. And so because of that, sin does not get to define your relationship with him. Because God is gracious, sin does not get to define your relationship with him. Because God is gracious, sin, as serious at it as it is, becomes a footnote in your relationship with him. Becomes a footnote in your story with him. It's worth mentioning and giving serious consideration to. It is serious. But as serious as sin is, it is outmatched by the grace of God. It is outpaced by the grace of God. It is outstripped by the grace of God. Because God is gracious, sin does not have the power to define your relationship with God. Instead, your relationship and your story with God can be defined by grace. By the grace of God superimposing itself over and against your sin, no matter how far you run. 
no matter how heinous your sin is. He's saying this in the context of the Israelites immediately turning away from God. God is gracious. It means you still have a God that you can run to and be with. No matter how far you have run, God still gives himself towards you. (laughs) Though you have disqualified yourself from relationship with him. Because all of us have, again, exchanged the truth about God for a lie. We have worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. We have all done this, and we all do this on a day-by-day basis, even still. But God, in his grace, says, no matter, I will give myself to you all the same. I will be toward you what you long for, what you truly need, what you're looking for in sin, the fulfillment or the flourishing or the joy or the sense of satisfaction. All of those things are found in me and you should have come to me first because that's where it is. But no matter, I will come to you still. I will come and give to you what you really need. I will be for you and towards you the God that you don't deserve. More than that, it says that God is gracious, but also merciful. Meaning, not only will God give you what you don't deserve, but he will also not give you what you do deserve. He will, God, God's grace is his, is his way of being towards you what you don't deserve, but mercy is God holding back from you everything that you do deserve. And that is good news, because everything we deserve is isolation. We deserve for God to have turned away. We deserve to, in our sin, because of its heinousness and because of what it is, we deserve to be left alone, to be dissolved as human beings living apart from God, our creator. But God in his mercy says, no, he withholds what we do deserve. He holds that back from us. This means that in grace, we get the relationship with God that we don't deserve. And in mercy, we don't get the cold shoulder when we get into that relationship. So in grace, God is opening himself up saying, I will be towards you all that I am, all of the goodness and all of the life. And then in his mercy, it means that we can come into that relationship and know that it's not going to change once we get there. It's not like God is inviting us into the room saying, hey, I'm going to be a God of life and of joy and of love. But as soon as you get into the room, he gives you the cold shoulder. He turns around. He doesn't notice you. He doesn't look at you. He doesn't address you. No, God's mercy is him being all of that, despite that you don't deserve it. Him giving those things to you and him withholding from you and keeping away from you the isolation, the dissolution, and the destruction that your sin has earned. The Bible says that sin brings death, not just physical death, but also spiritual death, which is isolation and separation from God. But God at his core is merciful. He wants to protect you from it. God's mercy protects you from Everything that you do deserve, all of the dissolution and isolation, the anger and the wrath that you do deserve. 
Though our sin warrants a cold stare, a cold shoulder, instead we get the smiles of a father. He holds back from us and away from us all of those realities that should make relationship with him terrifying. He holds those things back. He holds at bay everything that would put the relationship at risk of devolving and falling apart, self-destructing. And we see both of those realities in this story already. Like I said, God has, you know, whenever he, he, he warns the people that they have sinned, and so he, he's going to still give them what he's promised, but he's not going to go with them. What happens? Moses comes to God and says, Please, don't do this. You, you, you have brought us out into this land, and it's going to ruin your name and our name if you leave us alone now. And then God says, okay, I'm going I'm to listen to you, Moses. And you see, a lot of people come to this text, especially skeptics, and say, see, God is, doesn't really know what to do. He changes his mind. Well, here, here's the two options of how to, how to think about this story, of God relenting from what he said uh, he would do toward the Israelites. Number one, it could be that God is fickle, that God doesn't really know what he's going to do, that he changes his mind a lot. Or number two, it could be that God is so gracious and merciful that he will relent at the slightest request. Moses doesn't give a convincing argument to God. It's not like Moses is this just fantastic orator who's able to convince God himself to not do something. No, the story is trying to show who God is. It's not, God isn't changing his mind here because he's fickle and because he doesn't understand what he wants to do, but he's actually hoping to show Moses and the people of Israel and you today that he is gracious and merciful and he will relent at the slightest request. He will prevent disaster. He will give you what you want. He will give you what you need. He will be a God of grace and of mercy. Those are the two things that God gives priority to when he is letting us in on the center of who he is. The first things out of his mouth right after his very own name is that he is gracious and merciful. But he goes on. God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love to the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So first thing, slow to anger. The God is slow to anger, how contrary that is to what we think of him. How different that is than how many of us view God. How often does the thought that you should have been further along by now come into your head? How often do you think and, and, and almost metaphorically whip yourself to say, why, why am I this way still? Why can't I get it together? It's been 20 years. It's been 10 years. It's been 30 years. So long I have fought against this sin. So long I have given into this sin. I should have been further along by now. 
And we think that because we can't even meet the expectations that we have on ourselves, and we are frustrated with ourselves, we think, surely God is too. Surely, if, if, I'm, if I've lost my patience with myself, surely God has as well, long before me. No. God is slow to anger. God is not at his wit's end with you. He's slow to anger. The Hebrew word behind this phrase is, it's kind of weird. It, it, it means that God is long of nose, which is really weird. But what, what does that mean? So when you get angry or when I get angry, we tend, our, our, our breathing tends to heighten. We tend to take really fast breaths, whether we notice it or not, or are doing it to ourselves. We, we get worked up, right? But the Hebrew phrase here that's used and that's used for the rest of the Bible to describe God's long suffering and his patience is that he is long of nose, which means that he can do this. He's breathing. He's breathing slowly. He's not getting worked up so quickly. Instead, he is patient. He's taking it in. He's letting the moment slow down. He's not letting the moment of your sin or of your failure drive how he's going to react to you in that moment. Instead, he is patient, slow to anger. How contrary that is to what we think of him and to how we actually are. For us, we, we, get, we get in a tizzy. I mean, for me, the other day, it was just this week. And my, my daughter, Margot, who is three, so basically, it, it, was a, it was a Wednesday night, and so that means we have community group, and this time my, my wife went while I stayed back with the kids. And our son went down super easy, and then my daughter went down to sleep really easy for about 45 minutes. And I was going into this night with this expectation of, oh my gosh, I, I, have, I have a night. You know, these kids are going to sleep so good. I'm going to get to read. I'm going to get to watch recaps of The Bachelor. I'm kidding, I didn't do that. But I get to have a night to myself. And this, this little girl who's three years old just decides to blow that up. <laughs> and so she wakes up and she's angry because really she's just tired. And so whenever she wakes up tired, she gets angry. And so I go in there and, you know, the first couple times that it happens, I'm like, it's okay. Do you, do you, let me scratch your back. Okay. Do you, oh, you want me to sing to you? Okay. Well, here, yeah, here's your stuffed animal. You can cuddle with it. But when it gets to round three or four or five, my patience, quick, there, there's a quick drop off. <laughs> it's like I am you know, the first couple times, super patient, super compassionate. I know you're just sleepy. But then round three or four, I'm just like, you need to go to sleep. This is all done. Daddy's all done. I can't do this anymore. Okay, listen, you've got to go to sleep. You're three years old. You should know how to put yourself back to sleep by now. We get angry and worked up. Not with God. It's, it's not like God is just, God is not like me. He doesn't go through round one or round two of your sin and say, oh, it's okay, I'm going to be compassionate towards you, come towards me again. But then the longer it goes on, round four, five, ten, twenty, he gets progressively more and more angry. His, his patience gets more and more worn away. No, he is breathing, taking it in, taking, not letting the moment or the continued moments of your sin drive his reaction, but instead he takes a breath 
And he says, let's try this again. Let's get back up and let's try this again. Let's get back on our feet. Keep walking toward me. Like a father who's watching his children walk for the first time doesn't get angry because they can't get it together. He simply rejoices at the steps. He simply says, yes, you took two and you fell. Let's get back up. He's not yelling at us. He's not lost his patience. He's not quick to anger. He is slow to anger. But not only that, he is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. His love is committed. God is not like us. He keeps his commitment. He is not like us in our, in our especially modern day temptation to just punt on the relationship as soon as it gets difficult. As soon as we get angry, as soon as this person, this friend, this spouse, this church hurts us in a way, we so quickly get up and go, there's, there's other options. I'll go, I'll go elsewhere. Not so with God. He has other options. Sure. But he's committed in his faithful, steadfast love. A love that doesn't experience the waxing and the waning that our love does, but is purely, consistently steady and full. It says that it's abounding. So not only is it steady, but it's above everything we could ex ever expect. God is never in want of love. He's never... He's, he's, never, he's never going at risk of going bankrupt in his love towards you. His love is always and forever fully abounding for you. Steadfast. And that abounding nature of God's love never dips. Never goes down. He loved you from the foundations of the world, Ephesians 1 says. That he loved you before you ever had the chance to screw it up. He loved you when he knew that you would screw it up again and again and again. And it says in Romans 5 that even then Jesus still went to the cross. That if while we were still sinners, if while all we had to bring to the table was hostility and sin and anger toward God, and yet he still moved toward us in love, what in the world makes you think he's going to give up on that love now? He will be committed steadfast unmoved in his full love and affection for you. It's faithful love. Not only that, but he forgives every type of wrong. God, 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 God basically names everything you could do. And he says, I forgive those things. He says, iniquity. I forgive iniquity, which is basically guilt and corruption that gives us a bent towards sin and away from God. God forgives that corruption in you. He says, I forgive transgression. Transgression is when you know the line. You know the law. You know what, is, what, what you are called to, and you consciously, intentionally move past that line. You know what's required of you, and you still go past it. You say, I don't care. I'm going to do this. God says, I forgive that. When you sin against knowledge, when you sin against what you know you should do or should not do, I forgive that. And then the general category of sin, of idolatry, choosing to worship something that is not God, God forgives it. 
God says, there's not something that you could do. There's no, there's no form of sin. There's no way that you could run away from me that is unavailable to my grace. That is off the table for being forgiven. I will forgive you no matter what you do. I stand here like the, like the arms of the prodigal father ready to welcome you no matter what you've done. And you don't have to come to me and try to explain. I, I know what you did. Come and let me hold you again. Come and see that I am the God who forgives. And even in God's judgment that's mentioned here, that God will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children. What does it say before that, though? Keeping steadfast love to the thousandth generation. To the thousandth generation. But visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the third or the fourth generation. Which shows us that sin is taken seriously. But, it is a, but God's response toward your sin right now is a muted response in comparison to his love. For God to show and to keep steadfast love to the thousandth generation, can you measure back a thousand generations? No. It doesn't matter how good Ancestry.com gets. You cannot go back that far. And so he's saying, you won't be able to measure it. You won't be able to even measure. There's no timestamps that you can see and that you can measure on my love. It is full and unlimited. But in my response to sin, where I do allow, where, where there are the consequences of sin, yeah, I'm going to respond to that, but it's timestamped. It's something you can measure. You can look back the third or fourth generation. I have pictures of, my, of the third generation back. You can measure it. It's a smaller, muted response in comparison with his love. Does not mean that God doesn't take sin seriously. But it does give us a picture of what he wants to come toward us with first, which is love. This is the glory of God. This is the high point of Old Testament revelation where God himself sets the terms of who he is and how he will be. And it is far more wonderful than any of us could have expected. So unlike, so categorically unlike what we would expect of him. And I wonder today, what would keep you from believing and receiving that God is this way towards you right now? What kind of barriers would be there? I think there's two. There's a lot, but there's, there's two that come to my mind. First would be familiarity. What I shared today is not new revelation for most of you. I hope it is for some of you that you see for the first time that God is gracious and ready to forgive you. But if you've been around or in any good church for any amount of time, you've heard some preacher say before that God is gracious. And yet your heart is still dull. The grace of God has lost its sharpness to you. It's wonder. It's old, it's old news. You wouldn't say that with your words, but with the, the cold and dull heart betrays that fact. It's lost its wonder. 
So uh, last week I was watching the NCAA tournament and there was a moment in Gonzaga versus UCLA, which ended up not really mattering because Gonzaga lost, whatever. But there was a moment in where the game was in overtime and it was tied with seconds to go. And this freshman hits a 40-foot three-pointer, a right at the buzzer, sinks it, and they win the game to go to the championship, to go to the NCAA championship. That is a moment of sports wonder. That, that is a sports dream. That, that, I feel, almost feel sorry for that freshman kid because he's never going to do anything better than what he did in his freshman year at college. And in moments like that, when you're watching things that are so unexpected, that are so just, they are just in your face of, I can't believe that just happened. There's this reaction of the human heart where you just like get up out of your seat and you go crazy. Even if, even if you were going for UCLA and they lost, you still are just like, what? Did that just happen? That's a, that, that it's so unexpected that it gets us up out of our seat and we praise it. We think, wow. I can't believe that. That's going to go down in history for one of the best little moments of NCAA championships, of March Madness. And that, that wonder of newness and of totally unexpected, that's what the grace of God, that's what the character of God wants to do in your heart. If you would receive it, if you would let it have its way with you and see how wholly unexpected it is, it can make your heart jump again. How Wholly unexpected that even in our sin, God continues to be gracious, giving us what we don't deserve. That no, no matter how far or how long we run around every corner, there he is waiting to receive us. How unexpected. Wholly unexpected that he would be a God who restrains from us the destruction we deserve. That the God who is holy and righteous would choose, choose willingly of his own initiative to withhold from you everything that your sin has earned that would lead to your dissolution and to your destruction. How unexpected, wholly unexpected that God would be so unlike us in his patience. We have a short fuse ready to break and to snap at every infraction, but God takes a deep breath and says, let's get back up again. How unexpected, wholly unexpected that we would never suffer from a shortage of committed love. Never, God would never want to punt on the relationship, no matter how difficult you are as a person. How unexpected, wholly unexpected that he would be a God who keeps count of our tears, but not our sins. How unexpected. That's a wonder that can get you back up. But for some of you, you won't. And that for the second barrier, which is shame. Shame is this deeply held belief that there is something fundamentally wrong with you that cannot be changed. Shame won't let God have a chance. But there's a story in the Bible, later in the Bible, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, of a man who did give this great God a chance. 
You see, that in the Gospels, there's this leper. And in that time, someone who had leprosy was totally cast out. Devoid of human communication, human touch, human opportunity, anything that makes a human being a human, they were totally disqualified from. They were the ones who were dirty. They were the ones who were cast out of the city. In other words, this man had devolved through shame into something unhuman. But there comes this day where he hears that this man named Jesus is coming into town and he thinks, I've got to give it a shot. I've heard that this man can heal. I've heard that this man is compassionate and loving. And I just, it's my last opportunity. It's the only thing I can think of. It's a last ditch effort for me to be something else, for me to have this shame removed from me. And so he does. He goes into the city, finds this man named Jesus and comes to him falling at his feet and says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Do you, do you hear the desperation? Do you hear the sense of need, of last-ditch effort? I'm just giving this a shot because it's the only hope I have. If you will, if you wanted to, I'm not sure if you do, but I know if you wanted to, you can make me clean. And how does Jesus respond? Jesus, looking at him, and the text says, being moved with compassion reaches out and touches him and says, I will be clean. In that moment, not just saying, yes, I do desire for you to be clean, and so here you go. No, Jesus reaches out and does the unthinkable, touches this leper, this man who had forgotten the warmth of human touch, who had no dignity left, Jesus in compassion, portraying the God that he is, that we've seen in this text, reaches out in love and grace and mercy and touches this man, removing from him everything that would make him shameful, everything that would keep him separated from others, everything that would make him unclean before God. Jesus does the unthinkable and touches this man in compassion and in grace. That's this great God who reaches out and doesn't just say, yeah, I I desire to make you clean and so I'm going to make you clean, but actually goes to the source of your shame. The skin of that leper was the source, the center of his shame, the reason for it. And Jesus goes there. And I'm saying to you today, friends, that Jesus wants to go to the very source of your shame. No matter what it is that you've done or what it has been done to you, Jesus wants to go there and say, I will for you to be free of this shame, to be clean, to be washed, to be categorically changed and convinced out of this idea that you are disqualified from relationships that you run because you think you have to. Jesus wants to go to the source of our shame and cleanse us. And so I would say to you, friends, run to him today. No matter what it is that you are holding in your heart, no matter what sin, relational dysfunction, mental illness, whatever it is that is causing you to feel a sense of shame, go there. And God wants to address that. 
God wants to deconstruct that shame in order to show you that he is this God. Run to him, friends. Finally, my, my, my closing exhortation would be this. The grace of God, who he is, allows for forward movement in our life. It allows for that. We, we, we say a lot around here, begin where you are and take your next step. And that sounds like a really catchy statement and it's really easy to uh, you know, put on stickers, which I think is fun and fantastic. But I want us to realize behind that, that it's not just a catchy statement. It is, it's either untrue or it is a theological statement about God saying that because God is gracious, you can begin where you are. You don't have to pretend to be where you are not. You can admit, you can admit to not be okay. You can admit to be where you are, no matter how bruised, beaten, or down that is, and say, this is where I am. And then also, you can just take the next step because God is patient. You don't have to take the next nine steps. You don't have to take the next two steps. Again, God in his patience is just saying, all right, let's get back up and let's, let's keep walking. Let's take that next step. So friends, I would, I would exhort you today, whatever it is, I don't know that for you, but you do. Wherever you are, admit it. Confess it to God and to others. Say, this is where I am. I'm not saying I'm happy about it. I'm not saying I'm proud of it. But this is where I am, and I'm not going to hold that back. I'm not going to hide that any longer. And then take just the next step of connection, of relationship, of vulnerability, of repentance, whatever it is, just that first next step, because God is patient. Let's pray. Father, I thank you again for how unexpected you are, God, for how you come toward us in ways that we would never think to imagine. A God so loving, a God so gracious, a God so patient and kind and faithful. What a God you are. And we praise you for it, Lord. And Father, I, pray, I just pray specifically for my friends here at Icon who are listening, who are feeling totally disqualified from relationship with you and with others because of their shame. God, I pray that your spirit right now would begin to speak words of peace over them, would begin to deconstruct those pillars of shame in their hearts with your love and with your grace. That they would, that they would give you the opportunity, that they would come to you and allow you to set the terms of who you are, which is grace and mercy. And that they would watch that shame over time, fall away as they are more and more vulnerable with you and with others, believing and receiving and experiencing your great grace. God, would you do that for them? And would you help us to move forward specifically because of who you are? In Jesus' name I ask these things, Father. Amen. Now we're going to do a time of response. And every week we do the same few things. And first we're going to have a moment of silence. And in this moment, I just want you to think 
out of these characteristics of who God is? Which ones are wholly unexpected to you? And which ones do you need to receive afresh and say, yes, God, I believe you are this way. I receive your love. I receive your grace. I stand under your mercy and I am steadfast and stable in your faithfulness. Which of those do you need to believe? And then next, we're going to give. We know that we live in a city that longs for God, though they don't know it. That longs for this great God of patience and of love and of grace, but they don't have him. So they're looking at for anything else, and it is devolving and destroying them. Trapped by shame. What a shameful city we live in. Shame-ridden, feeling insecure and fragile. And we want the grace of God to break in. And so we give so that the mission of the church can go out and grace can win the day in Seattle. And then finally, we're going to take communion. We're going to take the bread and we're going to take the wine or the juice and remember that the grace of God, God being this way toward us, is not subjective based off, all, based off our experience or our performance. It is objectively shown and, and secured in Jesus Christ. We take the bread and know that Jesus was crushed on our behalf so that, we, so that God would be gracious toward us. We take the wine or the juice and know that we are washed by the blood of Jesus and so we are secure forever secure enough to approach this great God. Let's do that now.